As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 114, Seeds of a City. Today, we begin the first of many episodes exploring the ancient city of Akhet Aten, better known as Amarna. Home of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, Amarna is a fascinating place, a rare example of an ancient Egyptian city, built brand new from the ground up. This episode is supported by everyone who joined me on the first History of Egypt podcast tour, and everyone who will join me for the second. If you are interested in visiting Egypt, I've put together a wonderful itinerary for our 2020 tour, a safe and secure trip that just so happens to include the very site I'm discussing today. I would love to take you to Amarna and show you the city of Akhenaten in its natural setting. Consider joining me in the land of the pharaohs. Just follow the link in the episode description for more information. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the show. The year was 1357 BCE. Regnal Year VI, under the majesty of Amunhotep IV, king of... No, hold up. Year VI under Akhenaten, king of Upper and Lower Egypt. The pharaoh had recently changed his name, and now ruled as one devoted to the service of his favourite sun god. Akhenaten, one who is effective for Aten, was entering phase two of his strange historical journey. Last time, we saw how the pharaoh decided that Thebes, city of Amun-Re, would no longer suffice as a home. We saw how the king left that city, scouting out new locations, until he found one on the east bank of the Nile. At a place in Middle Egypt, Akhenaten chose a location free of external influences, where he could commission a magnificent residence for himself, his queen, and his god. This was the place called Akhet Aten, or Horizon of the Aten. Today, we know it better as Amarna. Amarna is a big place with many suburbs and institutions. In this episode, I'm going to look at the core of the city, specifically the royal palaces which dominated its centre. In later discussions, we'll look at things like temples, tombs, and residential areas. All of the city life stuff that makes Amarna so uniquely fascinating. Before we can do that though, we need to get a handle on how it all started. The foundation of Akhet Aten took place in two distinct steps. Although the king made his first declaration in year 5, he did not immediately take up residence in this area. When he found it, the site of Akhet Aten was almost entirely undeveloped, no facilities of any sort. It would take a long time to plan and construct the buildings that were needed for royal residence and government. Even if architects drew up the designs today, 
it would still take months or years to make any of those visions reality. We're not sure where Akhenaten lived during this intermediary phase. Perhaps he continued to reside in Thebes at the House of Rejoicing Palace, Malkata. Or perhaps he avoided the city of Amun and lived somewhere like Memphis or Gurob, royal residences that were well established and waiting for his majesty. Then again, it's possible that the king decided to live at Amana anyway, temporarily slumming it while his palaces were established. Exactly one year after his initial declaration, Akhenaten appeared at Amana once again. This time, he was in the city to confirm his initial ideas about the foundations and to make offerings and promises to Aten on the first anniversary of the city. This second speech survives on a massive boundary stealer, and it tells us of the king's deeds on this day. The text records, quote, Year 6, 4th month of Peret, day 13. On this day, one, the king, was in Aket Aten in the pavilion of matting that his majesty made. His majesty, life, prosperity, health, appeared on the great chariot of Electrum, like Aten when he rises in the horizon. He set off on a good road towards Aket Aten on the first anniversary of its discovery. End quote. This text suggests, or at least hints, that Pharaoh might have been living at Amana for a while. Apparently, he was staying in a temporary dwelling called the Pavilion of Matting. It's not clear what this is, but we can imagine a makeshift house, made of mud brick and roofed with timbers or reed matting. This kind of house wouldn't take too long to build. Dedicated artisans working for a few weeks could probably establish something functional quite quickly. It would be rudimentary by royal standards, but maybe good enough to house a king who was obsessed with his new location. It's possible that Akhenaten lived here for the full year, but we just don't know. All we know for sure is that one year after his initial speech, Akhenaten was back in the city making offerings to the sun god. The text continues, quote, A great offering was presented, which consisted of bread, beer, cattle with long and short horns, animals, birds, incense, wine, fruit, and all sorts of good plants. It occurred on the day of founding Arket Aten for the living Aten. Praise and love were received on behalf of the life, prosperity, and health of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, who lives in Ma'at, the lord of the two lands, Nefer Keperu Rei Wa Enrei, given life forever continually. End quote. Akhenaten came to Amana and made a procession, from his makeshift palace to the site of the city's foundation. At a particular spot, he performed offerings to the god, consisting of various expensive and delicious goods. For him, this was an important occasion, and he celebrated it with pomp and circumstance. It's possible that Akhenaten intended this day to be a new annual festival, a celebration of Aten and the foundation of his home. If that's the case, then Regnal Year 6 marked the first birthday of Arket Aten, the horizon of the sun god, product of Pharaoh's vision. So, we've done our introduction. The king has founded his new city, and work has begun. Between Regnal Years 5 and 6, 
Architects, craftsmen, and labourers scrambled to plan and organise building projects on a vast scale. Over the next few years, those workers would raise some incredible structures, the foundations of which have survived and allow us to reconstruct part of Akhenaten's city. I want you to imagine yourself as a visitor, coming to Aket Aten a few years after its foundation. What would you see in Pharaoh's new home? What kind of buildings defined the horizon of Aten? And what was life like at the centre of a major royal palace? For the rest of this episode, I would like to take you on a guided tour of the royal institutions which dominated the central city of Amarna. The city of Aket Aten developed outwards from a central quarter. At the heart of the city, major royal buildings, including two palaces and two temples, seem to have acted as the focal point for activity and business. The king himself seems to have planned these buildings from the get-go. In the first declarations about the city, in Regnal Year 5, the king told his courtiers of his plans for the city and the monuments that it was going to include. On that first day, when the sun was shining and he was full of inspiration, Akhenaten laid out the list of institutions that would make this place his royal home. Pharaoh said, quote, At Aket Aten in this place, I shall make the house of Aten for my father, the sun disk. I shall make the mansion of Aten for my father, the sun disk. And in the island of Aten, whose jubilees are distinguished, I shall make the house of rejoicing for my father, the sun disk. In this place, I shall make for myself the residence of the pharaoh, life, prosperity, health. And I shall also make the residence of the king's chief wife. End quote. The list of monuments included two temples called the House and Mansion of Aten, respectively. We will talk about those in a future episode when we discuss the religion of Aten as it was expressed in this place. For now, I want to focus on the third royal institution, the Great Palace, or House of Rejoicing, which Pharaoh commissioned. The House of Rejoicing, or Pihai, was a synonym for the palace complex which housed government business, including the throne room and audience halls of the pharaoh. Don't let the word palace fool you. This wasn't where the king lived exactly, more like a state building which he visited and used while sleeping and residing elsewhere. The House of Rejoicing was a mix of ceremonial, public, and semi-private spaces, all designed in lavish splendour. If the name of this palace sounds familiar, it's because we've heard it before. The House of Rejoicing was one of the phrases used to describe the Palace of Malkata, constructed by Amunhotep III, west of the city of Thebes. We explored that palace in episode 103. Apparently, Akhenaten borrowed the name of the old palace for his new one, and perhaps we should imagine that when he decided to move, the pharaoh simply relocated the whole infrastructure from Malkata down to Amarna. Attendants, servants, administrators, etc. were all tied to the institution of the king and the palace more generally. Chances are, most of them followed the pharaoh, from one house of rejoicing to the new one. The great palace itself was a monster. 
440 meters long, or 1,443 feet, and 250 meters wide, 820 feet. The palace stretched along the bank of the Nile, in a north-to-south mass of stone, brick, and decoration. It was the heart of the city, at least in terms of royal business, and behind its high walls, the complex was filled with a variety of facilities, courtyards and halls for banqueting or appearances by pharaoh, a throne room and chambers for private audiences, offering tables for worshipping the Aten, and secluded spaces for relaxation or informal gatherings. Across 27 acres, over a million square feet, the house of rejoicing was gargantuan. To start, you entered the palace through a monumental gateway, probably guarded by massive pylons. Behind that, a vast courtyard provided an area for public gatherings and business. Perhaps this is where scribes or officials came to engage with the citizens, a useful area for connecting the hidden world of government with the public world of the community. That is just a guess, but it's possible. Beyond the first courtyard, you found a second gateway and yet another court. This one was slightly different, because it was probably set aside for business and events concerning the king himself. You entered this second court via a pair of ramps, which descended from a platform behind the gateway. As you descended, you came face to face with a huge series of statues, which lined the outer edges of the courtyard. On every side, colossi of Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and their daughters watched over the court. Dozens of images, painted and decorated, conveying the majesty of the royal family. Just like the Gemet Pa Aten temple at Karnak, the second court of the great palace was given over to immense images of royal power. At the far end of the court, to the south, a sort of porch made a place for Pharaoh and his family to appear in ceremonies. This columned portico stood on a raised platform which jutted out into the yard and gave the king a place to lead events and make proclamations, possibly even dispensing gifts to some of his servants. Also, this portico, and the courtyard in general, may have been a great place to host state banquets. Based on artistic scenes in some of the Amarna tombs, we know that Akhenaten liked to host huge feasts as a reward for his most favoured subjects and courtiers. Those banquets may have been immense, and this courtyard is probably the best place to fit that kind of event. In the open air beneath the light of Aten, privileged elites could dine near to the pharaoh and enjoy the generosity of his table. Such banquets were a good way to display wealth, and to build relationships with the powerful men and women of society. Behind the second courtyard and the royal portico, the most secluded areas of the palace were hidden from public sight. This was the part where you'd find the throne room, a large roofed hall in the centre, along with courtyards and, possibly, podiums for obelisks. Traces of decoration survive from this section, enough to give us a sense of the lavish style in which royal business was once conducted. The many columns, for instance, were decorated in bright colours, meant to evoke a sense of nature and fertility at the heart of the structure. 
Some of them were designed like open flowers or papyrus plants, and around their stems they featured colourful foliage patterns mingled with cartouches of Aten and Akhenaten. On the floors, painted frescoes evoked scenes of life along the Nile. Waterways, pools and riverbanks brightened the floors with ribbons of blue. In between, the main walkways were lined with human figures. These bound men of different countries represented the foreigners over whom Akhenaten held sway. For anyone walking through the inner courts, each step represented the subjugation of enemies far and wide. I wonder how dignitaries visiting the palace felt about that. Other decorations reveal that the great palace was once covered in scenes representing fertility and abundance. Among other things, we see offering stands piled high with grapes, vases full of flowers, pools filled with birds for hunting, and wildlife frolicking through the gardens. This was a common style in the city. Other buildings, including other palaces and temples, reveal an overriding focus on wildlife, nature, and greenery in Arket Aten. In one image, we even see a rare set of planter boxes, square vessels holding small trees, which makes me imagine Akhenaten demanding his landscape designers do something like this. We shall say again to you if you do not appease us. Well, what is it you want? We want a shrubbery! A what? Then, when you have found the shrubbery, you must place it here beside this shrubbery, only slightly higher so you get a two-level effect with a little path running down the middle. A path, a path, a path. Whether that happened or not, it does seem like the Great Palace and many other buildings at Amana were decorated extensively with scenes of nature, wildlife, and general fertility. Although it was built on the edge of the desert, Akhenaten still took care to make his palace a place of abundance and symbols of life. The Great Palace, or Pihai House of Rejoicing, was the heart of Akhenaten's new residence. But it wasn't the king's home. Although we call it the Great Palace, for the most part this structure probably wasn't a domestic space. It had some amenities, but most of the things we would associate with a house were actually found next door. Just across the street, there was another complex attached to the palace, which most likely served as the king's actual house in the city. We will explore that building and the lifestyle which Akhenaten enjoyed there in chapter 2. For now, it's time for a short break. See you in a moment. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
Visiting the ancient city of Arket Aten, Amana, you get a sense of a world separate from the rest of Egypt. In this out-of-the-way landscape, bordered by sandstone cliffs and the River Nile, it's not hard to imagine a place devoted to an exclusive, peculiarly royal lifestyle. Although thousands toiled on the monuments and many made their homes in this city, the majority of its built space is dominated by institutions of the king. We visited one of these already, the enormous Great Palace or House of Rejoicing. Now, it's time to see where Akhenaten himself may have actually lived. Akhenaten's home, what we call the King's House, was constructed across the road from the Great Palace. It was connected to the larger building by a bridge, which spanned the roadway and gave the pharaoh easy access to his government. Thanks to this bridge, the king could cross the street and appear to his people without ever having to get his feet dirty. The king's house was expansive, about 90 metres on each side, 200 feet or so, and it was roughly divided into three sections. The largest area was a courtyard, which connected to both the bridge and a small gate. This entrance hall was open air and planted with rows of trees kind of like an orchard or garden, a gathering space for the king and his closest followers in a pleasant, cool environment. Considering how much the decoration of the great palace emphasised nature, it's perhaps not surprising that the king's house would include a garden as its main entrance part. Quite a nice area, probably. Behind this court slash orchard, the apartments of Pharaoh were clustered along the southern side of the complex. This area was about 45 metres long and 30 wide, and involved a warren of bedrooms, halls, a throne room, and domestic facilities. It also included a special window, which looked out onto the orchard court from a small room on the eastern end. This window, apparently, was where the king would appear to dispense rewards to his most loyal servants. Back in episode 112, we saw an official named Ramosa being rewarded in this manner. Well, that act of generosity is going to be a massive part of Akhenaten's publicity in this city. It's not surprising that his personal house would include a window where he could do this. The rest of the king's house, beyond the orchard and the apartments, was given over to a massive set of storerooms. At least one-third of the whole complex is dominated by granaries, warehouses, and a well. This was the economic part of the palace, the place where supplies were kept in storage for use by the royal family. Probably there was a large amount of what we would call treasure. Vessels of silver or gold, ingots of bronze, amphorae of wine, oil, and honey, statues and pieces of furniture not in use, baskets full of ornaments, gifts from foreign lands. Also, food, huge quantities of meat and vegetables. These storerooms were a vast trove of royal wealth. Presumably, it was an area constantly watched and patrolled by trusted guards. The king's house was lavishly decorated, and among the many features, it included a painting that is now quite famous. In a small side room, One of the walls was painted with a scene of Nefertiti and Akhenaten facing each other with their three daughters in the middle. Most of this scene is destroyed, but we can tell that Nefertiti was squatting on a low podium or dais. 
She wore golden sandals and a robe of fine linen that covered her body but showed hints of the skin beneath. At her wrist, a long scarf or ribbon flared down to the ground. Beneath her feet, the podium was decorated in a bright pattern of red, yellow, and blue. It is a lavish scene, but the most famous part is something else. Just below Nefertiti and off to the side slightly, a pair of young girls sit on thick cushions interacting with one another. They are nude for the most part, their bodies only covered by a set of necklaces, bracelets and golden earrings. Extravagant treasures for such children, which mark their status as wealthy women. The girls' bodies are depicted with the chubbiness that is so characteristic of a mana art. I introduced this style in episode 112, and here we see it developing into something more refined and delicate than those early attempts. By the time Akhenaten's house at Amana was being decorated, which probably took a year or two, artists had gotten to the swing of things and were able to use the new artistic style in more graceful and elegant ways. These two girls are a wonderful example, a mix of distinctive Amana forms and top-notch Egyptian artistry. Apart from their chubby bodies, the girls have the long limbs characteristic of this style, and they sit in a relaxed posture. The girl on the left has her legs sticking out in front of her, while the girl on the right has her knees tucked up, feet resting on her cushion. One girl drapes an arm around her sister, while the other rests an arm across her knees, giving the pair a sense of liveliness, as if the artist had captured them from life. Those delicate poses are again a hallmark of this time, and make the scene a more vibrant and evocative piece of work. Of course, the girls still have some of the Amana weirdness. Their heads, for example, are elongated with bulbous craniums, and their eyes take up a lot of space on their face. Their necks are ever so slightly too long, just like their parents, making their heads look a little out of proportion to the rest of their body. Those proportions, which altered some of the fundamentals of Egyptian art, will be seen repeatedly throughout the coming episodes, as we delve more and more into the artistic depictions of Amana and its people. The girls are clearly young. For one thing, they lack the hair braid or side lock which we see on other princesses. Instead, the artist has given them a black fuzz on the back of their heads, the sort of fuzz you find on infants. So maybe these girls are toddlers, younger daughters of the royal couple. If that's the case, they may be the fourth and fifth daughters of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, a pair of girls named Nefer Neferu Aten Tasherit and Nefer Neferure. We'll meet them properly in an upcoming episode. At a casual glance, these girls almost blend into the background. Behind them, the podium on which Nefertiti squats is a deep red with spots of blue and gold. This red dominance is a problem because the girl's skin is also a reddish brown, meaning that they almost disappear into the context of the larger scene. The artist has done what he can to help them stand out. The girl's bright nails and black-lined eyes give them some distinction, and they have a faint black outline which helps to separate them from the red surroundings. Overall though, the scene is a bit muddled, and the girls could easily disappear on your first glance. Of course, that was partly intentional. 
Today, the girls are the best surviving fragment, but originally, they were just a tiny add-on to the much larger scene, which was dominated by Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and their three eldest daughters. Anyone looking at this painting in its original context might have missed the two babes entirely. It's only a stroke of luck, for them, that the rest of this scene was lost, so now, the Amana princesses are a famous example of art in the city. Architecture and decorations are nice, but what about the actual lifestyle of the people here? How did the king live in this house? Well, it's hard to know exactly, but thanks to archaeologists, we do have some clues about daily life in the royal centre. As I noted earlier, the city of Arket Aten developed outwards from a central precinct, which included the two palaces for Akhenaten and grand temples for the sun god. But before any of those monuments could rise, the city itself, as a living space, probably began with a depot. Buildings and labourers need three things. They need water for hydration, food for energy, and materials for construction. Water was easy enough. Porters could haul jars of it from the river and distribute it to the people. Building materials were acquired from elsewhere and from the city itself. Brickmakers, for instance, dug their clay from the soil of the desert, and fashioned bricks on the spot for use in construction. Food, though, that was a bit trickier. At first, Arket Aten didn't have enough farmland to support the thousands of workers who migrated to the region, so the city needed constant deliveries of vegetables, meats, and other items in order to sustain the labourers. Records of those deliveries survive in the form of broken jars labelled with their contents and place of origin. Thanks to these jar labels, we can get a sense of how the city was supported and fed. According to the surviving labels, the city of Akhet Aten received thousands of deliveries of meat. These were cured, perhaps like ancient biltong, and they came from ranches and estates elsewhere in the land. One typical label, for instance, records the delivery of, quote, preserved meat, intestines, for the daily offerings provided by the butcher Wepet, coming from the depot called the Soul of Ra Lives, end quote. Cured meat was great for workers, of course, lots of protein and a nice change to the monotony of bread. There was also beer in huge quantities, which could probably have been manufactured on site, but which also arrived in deliveries. One jar label is quite fun. It describes a beer called Henket Semket Resut, beer that ignores awakening. Apparently, this was a good beer for insomniacs or those who wanted a nap. Take a draught, settle back under a tree, and let the good dreams come. Along with meats and beers, there were also deliveries of wine. This was probably a royal product mostly, but the surviving labels show that a lot of it came to the city. Naturally, the palace received the best of it. Wine labels found in the central city have labels like Good, Nefer, Very Good, Nefer, Nefer, Sweet, Nejem, and Genuine, Ma'a, which tells us pretty clearly that quality control was a concern. The Egyptians distinguished different types of wine based on their taste and clarity, and of course, only the best stuff was fit for this city. Interestingly, the wine labels record a variety of production centres, some connected with the royal family, others with temples. 
There is one, though, called the House of Amun in Thebes, which I find quite interesting. It seems that the pharaoh's dislike for Amun did not quite extend to the vineyards of that god. Although he had rejected the Hidden One and his name, Akhenaten was quite happy to requisition the products of Amun's estates, and to summon them to Akhet-Aten for his own use. The god Amun may have been out of favour, but his wealth was quite welcome if it filled the pharaoh's cup. Besides wine, we also have records of more miscellaneous products. Items like oil, nechek, honey, beet, incense, senecher, and olive oil, bak, show up in the record. There is also a variety of fruits, including dates, bener, grapes, iaret, and sycamore figs, nekaut. These goods were all valuable and probably destined for the palaces. They flowed to Arket Aten from throughout Egypt, and I think we should recognise the thousands of people toiling in anonymity who helped to sustain Pharaoh's new city. We can imagine that Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and their daughters enjoyed lives of great comfort. Artistic scenes like that princess painting show the family squatting on podiums or seated on cushions and ornate chairs. Other art from Amana shows Akhenaten drinking wine in the company of Nefertiti. An unfinished stela carved in the city shows the king seated on a chair holding a cup to his lips. The queen holds up a small bottle and a cascade of wine pours out into the pharaoh's cup. It's a cute little scene, made more interesting by the fact that the sculptor only finished the outlines of the figures. So we get a sort of silhouette of the royal couple, with all the details missing. It's rough, but it's charming. I'm quite fond of it. Apart from art and jar labels, questions of daily life in the palace are a bit harder to come by. What about the objects used by the king and queen? Well, there's not much. Most of the royal family's possessions were cleared out when they left Amana later on, and we actually have to rely on the tomb of Tutankhamun to guess at how a king like Akhenaten lived. Among Tut's possessions, we see objects like ivory combs, boxes of wood and gold, clothing of fine linen, jewellery of metal, perfumes and games which the king could use to while away his leisure hours. Although those products probably didn't come from Akhenaten's personal collection, many of them are the sort that we can assume this pharaoh used. So although some of the physical traces have survived, enough survives from the rough time period to give us a sense that Akhenaten enjoyed great comfort in the new city he was constructing. The king's house across from the great palace is a fascinating little structure. In life, the royal family probably divided their time between this house and a set of palaces built in other parts of the city. Amana is well stocked with different residences for the pharaoh. In coming episodes, we'll see how it all links together in a kind of big picture way. For now, it's time to bring our little tour to a close. Akhenaten's palaces and the wider city of Akhet-Aten were first planted in regnal year 5, around 1358 BCE. They would grow rapidly over the next few years, with monuments rising across a wide expanse of territory. Temples, tombs, suburbs, and even more palaces would emerge, filling out the desert area with construction work and residential space. 
It's going to take us many episodes to explore those things, but I'll break that up with discussions of life and events as they transpired in this new city. As you can imagine, Arket Aten, Amana, is a fascinating place to visit. On the next episode of the History of Egypt podcast, we will see how Akhenaten defined his new cityscape. In a short extra episode, I will show how the king established the limits of Arket Aten and what that tells us about his mindset and his priorities. Unsurprisingly, some of those priorities have been misinterpreted in the past. So, in episode 114b, I will set that record straight and show how Pharaoh planned to live in his newly founded city. With that, I'll say my farewell. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you soon. Oh, and stick around after the music for a brief epilogue. We spent a decent chunk of this episode exploring the House of Rejoicing, better known in archaeology as the Great Palace. Among the architectural and decorative discussions, we saw how this palace was designed to evoke a sense of the pharaoh's gifts through banqueting and appearances, and also the fertility of the world he created through painted scenes of wildlife and nature. Well. That sense of Akhenaten and Aten as life-givers was also reinforced in the structure itself. Apart from the columns in the shape of flowers and papyrus, there were areas in the palace set aside for growth and creation. Very quickly, I want to show you one hidden part where a select group could go to relax and enjoy nature's bounties. Just for a moment, I want to show you Pharaoh's secret garden. On the eastern edge of the great palace, hidden from the main court, a long rectangular area was set aside for recreation. This was a secluded section, walled off and only accessible from the throne room and its accompanying halls. It was a royal space first and foremost, and it seems to have been dominated by a hidden garden. The centre of this area featured a long rectangular pit, sunk into the earth which was divided up into small squares. This sunken garden was filled with flowers and trees, and fed by an underground water channel that was connected to the wider palace. The channel was lined with blocks of limestone, and thanks to this ancient piping, the garden could grow while still staying hidden from the rest of the palace. Presumably, this was an area designed for secluded relaxation. The garden dominated this court, but there was also a series of rooms, more than 20 of them arranged along three walls. The rooms were small, just large enough for a single occupant, or two sharing a bed, and they opened out to the courtyard directly. If the occupants wanted privacy, each room had a door which they could close, and archaeologists have found tiny traces of the wood which broke off when the doors were removed. So these cubicles, as they were, could be used by people for relaxation and privacy. Were they bedrooms for permanent occupation? Well, that's hard to say. The exact purpose of this garden court is unclear, 
The original excavators, working in the early 20th century and full of Euro-American preconceptions, called this the North Harem, suggesting that this was where the king's many women lived and awaited his summons. That's definitely possible, but there's nothing in the archaeology or art to suggest that. Obviously, it was a beautiful space, and it may have been a place for leisure or different pursuits. But the specifics of its day-to-day -day use are murky. It's equally possible that this was a place for social gatherings, a beautiful garden where the king and queen could host privileged courtiers, in a secluded and lavish space separate from the rest. I'm almost tempted to imagine a sort of garden party area, but that's just a guess. Either way, it's impossible to know exactly what this space was for. Perhaps it had many uses, we simply can't be sure yet. All we know is that this secret garden was a small oasis of calm and nature amidst the bustle of the central city and the day-to-day -day business of the great palace. It is a wonderful part of the structure, and I'm glad I got to show it to you. is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic, and then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity? What is this, yoga class? Get out of here!